Monday, October 30th, 2017. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 136 of the 5049 Podcast. How you guys doing? You all right? You hanging in? Thanks for joining us for another conversation between myself and another musician. Um, Today, that musician... I would say by all objective standards is a complete virtuoso of uh, his respective instruments. Today on the show, Colin Stetson is with me and uh, I'm really excited about today. Episode 136, Colin Stetson. If you can believe it, that solo saxophone that you hear back there. Good shit. Before we get into it, uh, a couple, or really, you know, one big thing I want to talk about with you guys. Um, As I think most of you know, uh, I have for many years here in New York City been um, at different times uh, pretty, pretty deeply involved with The Stone. The Stone is a performance space uh, in the East Village. It's been there for the last 12 or 13 years. It was opened and, and continues to be run by John Zorn. You know what? Do you guys need an introduction to The Stone? I don't think you do. Here's what's going on. The Stone is moving uh, in March. It's going to the new school. And as we get ready to do that, there's still some unfinished business. There's still a considerable amount of money, um, a deficit that The Stone is is still operating at. It's around $30,000. And as we get ready to move to the new space, we're going to incur more, more costs. Uh, So very simply, we've created a a pledge drive, and we are asking that anyone who who uh, loves the stone, who has participated in the stone in the you know 13 years in the East Village, and and wants to help out, uh, please do. The way you can do that is go to the page that we set up. It's generosity.com. It's it's an arm of Indiegogo, and we started this drive. uh, This we launched it on Friday. In the first two days, we're 25% of the way there to our goal. It's going really well, and I, I want to also say thank you to everyone who's already contributed. Uh, but if, if you haven't or, or you're not aware that we're doing this, please check it out. Uh, I'll, I'll keep this short. Uh, you know, any, Anything you can do to help really does help, and it makes a difference. And if you go to the 5049 website, right on the homepage, uh, I, I, there's a link to it. So that's, that's a quick way to get there. Please consider doing it. The stone meets a lot to all of us, and and let's help let's help make this transition a smooth one. Okay, today on the show, Colin Stetson. Uh, Colin is a master. I don't know what else to say. Um, in the last several years, uh, he's gotten a good amount of attention uh, for his work, for his playing. Um, he he's been on the stage with some pretty notable groups like the Arcade Fire and, and Bon Iver. But I think primarily Colin is known for his solo playing, and and it's easy to understand why. Uh, at this point, it seems like his main sax is the bass sax. He does these concerts, uh, these solo concerts that are incredibly engaging, uh, very physical, um, and and you know, despite the fact that he's up there working his ass off at a level of musicianship that I think very few people actually ever really get to. Um, he, the music is accessible. It's enjoyable, uh, and it's it's very unique. And something I have to say about about Colin, you know, we had met very briefly over the years, handful of times, said hi here and there, but you know, this is the first time that he and I ever really, um, definitely that we ever really spoke at any kind of real length. And 
I was kind of delighted uh, to hear Colin say this to me in this conversation. Despite the recognition that Colin's gotten over the years, despite the incredible amount of output that's been coming from him uh, with the solo music and, and the other stuff, in my mind, Colin Stetson is first and foremost the guy that played clarinet and sax on two uh, Tom Waits records that are really important to me, Blood Money and Alice. I don't know if I've ever uh, really mentioned this on the show, but I would describe myself as uh, – perhaps a borderline obsessive Tom Waits fan. Uh, I have been for a very long time. And I remember when these records came out in like, I think 2001, 2002, you know, I, I was grabbed by Colin's work immediately. Um, and, you know, I, so he, he was in my mind, uh, you know, many, many years ago. And over the years, you know, as I've seen him kind of, you know, blow up and, 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 and kind of create his own musical world, He's still, to me, the guy from those records. Uh, and and you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. Colin today on this show talks about what his relationship to the music of Tom Waits has meant to him, as well as working on those two records specifically. Um, in the last several years, Colin's work has, has really broadened. Uh, he put out a record last year that's sort of a, a reimagining of Goretzky's third symphony. That record's called Sorrow. He just put out a quartet record recently uh, with a band called Xi. It's him and Greg Fox from from Liturgy and Z's, as well as uh, Shazad Ismaili. He's he's doing a lot of great shit, and um, you know he's he's also a really nice guy. Takes music very seriously, and and that's what we want, huh? I think as a team we can agree that what we want out of our musicians, out of the people we listen to, out of the people we play with, out of the people we work with, the people we admire, uh, we want people who work hard. Who, who, who follow their path, they follow their vision, and put everything they have into it. And I, I say very confidently that Colin Stetson's one of those guys. If you want to find out more about Colin, and uh, I really suggest that you do. I suggest you spend some time with these records. There's a lot going on. Go to colinstetson.com. He's busy. He's on the road a lot. Uh, there should be plenty of opportunities for you to be able to check him out live if, if you're into it. Go to colinstetson.com. Go to the 5049 site and check out the, the, the pledge drive for the stone. This is serious business. Let's, let's get this taken care of and let's get it done quickly and, and maintain what is a very important musical space that we all benefit from. All right, that's it. I hope you guys are all doing well. Here's my conversation with Colin Stetson. It's like more than the back of a book cabinet that we're sitting. <laughs> <That's> a bit <laughs> more. <laughs> well, because you don't live in New York, so you have. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. I have. Um, I've been living in Montreal for the past ten years, and I moved. Well, I, I bought a place in Vermont in the mountains about five years ago that was supposed to be just like a retreat. Um, that ended up. I built a studio in the attic in the third floor, and so now it's. So, I mean, it's not enormous, but it's about six, eight. 800 square, six to 800 square foot, um, uh, but apex roof thing. And I yeah, converted it and totally renovated it. So it's all um, like 
there's no um, there are no right angles. Everything is slightly um, like the the knee walls are yeah. slightly off. You, you couldn't know to look at them, but just the the way that the math all works out, so that the acoustics are quite nice, um, and uh, everything's old barnwood that I found from I had dude source from all these places. And did you bring in like um, like a, an acoustician or whatever? Not yet. No, I'd like to have a friend come over and to um, start dialing. Because you know, right now it's just raw. We built it. And it sounds fine. It gets sure. the job done. I recorded, um, I recorded the duo record with Sarah in there. I recorded my last solo record there. I recorded six film scores, and I'm in the middle of a film score now and a, and a TV score um, starting up soon. I um, mean, I have to imagine the ambient sounds in rural Vermont are uh, a little more pleasing than the ambient <laughs> sounds that you hear from my apartment of <laughs> people uh, screaming and fucking sirens blaring. Yeah, man, I get, I get, uh, I get so used to it out there that um, it's nice to come. I, I start to get the itch, and I'll right. come, and I'll come back to the city. It doesn't take long for me to go. Okay, yeah, yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'll, Wait, and so, I'll head so back. you live full time in Vermont now? I live, yeah. I mean, selling the Montreal house uh, sometime in uh, early next year, and then, and then. Um, I'm almost all in on uh, on Vermont throughout the winter, just because most of the jobs that I, all the jobs I have, really are, are going to be scoring and from there, and and then next, I guess like next summer I'll start looking in earnest for a place in New York, and it'll be. Do I'll you be, used to live? Here? I used to I used to live here, and I've been kind of. I mean, I've I've had an apartment that I've a room in an apartment that I've shared um, for years, and I still do that now. But I'm going to be looking for a place of my own to to buy probably yeah and um and down here. yeah um yeah wait but you were in broken i remember you worked at uh lucky cat yeah yeah man i remember luck. you playing there that was awesome <laughs> <laughs> that was a long time ago <laughs> that was like a uh a real hang like there was that scene around there there was zebulon there was the oh, lucky god cat. damn it it was it was the fucking golden age for me uh, i mean well, a lot of us it was incredible um, the the fact that Zebulon was there, um, doing what it was doing, I was there. If I didn't, I mean, if I didn't have a gig or a shift at the bar, and usually on nights, even when I did have a gig or a shift right. at that bar, I would end up at Zebulon. So I was there almost every night. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it I, was, if those guys liked you, like Joe and Jeff, like you were treated very well there. Stuart and I walked into there, walked into the place at my on my birthday, on my thirtieth. No. Was it my 30th? No, it was one of my birthdays. Uh -huh. um, we walked in there on my birthday at four in the morning after like just going everywhere. And Jeff was there alone. He had already put up all the chairs and right. all the uh, all the stools. And we were like stumbled in all drunk. And we we're like, Jeff, it's my birthday. <laughs> and he, he heard that. He turned the lights on. He pulled the stools off. He popped a bottle of champagne. And we stayed there until six. Just going. It was, ugh. Yeah. It's the best. I, it's, I love them. Th one thing I really, when I think about that place, and it's something when I think about a lot of like, um, like brasseries that I like, like everything sort of felt like hodgepodge in like a beautiful way. Mm -hmm. Like the like the pressed tin ceilings, yeah, and like all the Afrobeat like records that are lining on the wall, uh -huh. and you know, there's none of the the fucking chairs really match. <laughs> it's just yeah. beautiful. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was spectacular. It was such a good spot. There was I never experienced anything quite like it before or after. I mean, they got a new space in L.A., which I know been? is very different. I have not been yet. I think it's a little more like it's more of a venue. Yeah, it's, it's like less Hamish. It's a little yeah, more yeah. <laughs> like official. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm still psyched to go and to play and to hang. Are you gonna play there soon? Uh, no plans soon, but 
I'm, I'm trying to work out the, the schedule for the next um for the coming months because some scoring things i'm doing just got all switched around and but i'm, I'm hoping to be able to get to la for a, a stretch in yeah in january i was just there yeah it's a, it's i'm down with it are you down with it la yeah yeah man i've been down with it from time to time i'll get there and i'm so down with it at in the moment that i'm like I'm not what, leave. A, what about just uh, what about doing this or snowboarding? How long before that goes away though? Like five days? <laughs> I've never spent enough time there for it to go right. away. It so goes away. that's the thing. I don't. I don't spend enough time anywhere. Uh, the only place I spend a lot of time now is in Vermont, and the the only thing that, that does for me there is just fully entrench me into this wilderness mode where I forget about everything and everyone, and I'm just in full zen. Is that something out. you always wanted? Um, I didn't. I, it was something I always wanted when I was a kid, when I yeah. was young. All of my drawings and everything were all about me living solitarily as mm-hmm. some sort of weird hermit on the back of a on the back of an elk or some shit. When I was a little boy, mm-hmm. and um, then you become a musician, your life is in bars, people, 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 constantly yep. touring, and um, and so for from so, pretty solid from two thousand four. Five. I was just on the road more and more and more. Then I joined Arcade Fire in 2007 and was really on the road. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then it was Bonnie Bear, and then that just kept on going. And um, so by the time I bought that place, which is in 2012, the Vermont, place. yeah, the Vermont place, yeah. it was. I was like on fucking red <laughs> alert. I was. I was all folded up. Yeah, I couldn't. Yeah, I, didn't, yeah, yeah. I didn't even know how much I was, but it was just really, I was maxed out with just the but socializing and just the constant beration of, of, berating of all the yeah. noises and everything. I mean, I think a lot of us, I mean, certainly like New Yorkers, people that live in like this really dense city, um, and then more specifically musicians, people who do have to engage in a lot of social activity just as part of what they do, but who are also just constantly processing information mm. in a way that is, you know, arguably more exhausting um, than people who do other things. Um, like how much of your desire to get into the woods do you think is was about musicianship and, and something not being addressed within? Initially, I don't think that there was a whole hell of a lot that I was consciously thinking like, oh, I needed to get... I'd been in Montreal for a few years, um, for quite a few, for five already. And, um, and I had a decent amount of space there. Yeah. You know, the house there, uh, I had a studio in the basement. I could get away from everything, um, but it was still living in a city. So I didn't, I wasn't consciously like, oh, I need to get out of this, out of the rigmarole and get into some into serious Zen space. Yeah. Um, but once I did get that place and start spending a little bit of time there for a number of reasons and in a number of ways, it drew me in just overnight i was just completely drawn to it and the 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 nature of the land um that the the, the house the house itself is it's an it's old the, house it's an old house it was yeah. built in 1861 Jesus. um it has a whole you know uh history to it um particular history to it um in the the town that it was built up around it and around the guy that built it and um, so the house is just this spectacular beautiful like relic and then built into the the surrounding area and there's a river that wraps right around the house on three sides the rock the the, the house is built on on this rock um this big outcropping of rock uh, ledge rock and then i own 50 acres of a forest yeah and so but when i got it it was totally run wild and everything was just swampy and 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 are you personally 
so I I converted all of this. I mowed everything down. I I brought in an excavator and did a bunch of work on riverbeds and and uh, pulled out a bunch of trees and old logs and all this yeah. shit and replanted everything. I've done. I mean, I don't know how countless weeks um, over the years yeah. of um, labor on on planting and seeding and uh, completely transforming that the, the bits of the house that needed it and also the the land. Um, and so now it's a fucking wonderland man but it's yeah. like owning a park sure so every so when i'm there I, and even when i'm not there i'm constantly thinking about like what what's what, what what's necessary right now what season right. is it what am i what am i coming up to right now and what 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 do i have to get um get ready for see that's and, the thing man like just today like you know i own this place and i had a i found a leak under my sink last night i'm like oh fuck man why not oh i'll just call the maintenance department <laughs> <laughs> like when you own a place, like I remember oh, when I first is... bought this place, like something happened, there was this leak coming in the ceiling. I'm like, who's gonna fix that? I was like, fuck, I gotta fix that. <laughs> <laughs> and this is 800 square feet, like. <laughs> uh, yeah. So this, so this year, we had when when I first bought the place, there had just been uh, Hurricane Irene had just happened a year or two before, and it completely decimated the whole area, and it really fucked up that all the the land because the, the apparently the water levels of the of the river rose about. 10 12 yeah, feet yeah sure yeah yeah um we lost all these trees down here oh yeah yeah all well, the the salt water that came in incredible yeah um yeah the devastation and and the guy who who sold it to me it was this beautiful um man uh old uh buddha buddhist who um sold the place to me in in part of his um quest to become a renunciate and now he lives huh. out in the, in the desert um but uh when, so, but, but the, the hurricane really just kind of destroyed his last little hold on that spot, and he just couldn't do it. So when I came in, part of my, um, you know, self-imposed um, uh, uh, tasks there were, were just okay. You're going to turn this around because everything was just er- ero- erosion and riverbeds is something that'll just never. It'll just keep on going and going and going mm-hmm. unless something stabilizes yeah, yeah, yeah. it. Um, and so I had to. So I brought in excavator guy. This lovely fucking motor mouth that um that I, <laughs> a good buddy of mine now um and he went to town and, and just completely remade all of the riverbeds in the spot um and so and then i planted willow and i planted other shrubs and i planted everything and you know this but this is this isn't just like a little stretch this is fucking like hundreds right. of feet and and several oxbows worth of of river around this house and um and so this year, so this has been five years of me planting and and shoring up and doing more work and bringing in rocks and bringing you know uh, like bringing in fucking piles yeah, of boulders, yeah, yeah, yeah. like and, real work, um, yeah, yeah. And then um, and then this year we had um, rain that lasted from April until the end of July, basically, mm-hmm. and uh, it was so much that it just brought in piles and piles of gravel. It it uh, bottlenecked the river and it tore out i would say 75 percent of the plantings and the work that i've done over the five, past five years were gone in a night that's it, the river impermanence that's like your mandala feet. getting oh, wiped yeah. away <laughs> and so then it so then so yeah so my my leak under the faucet was fucking 10 grand worth of river repairs just like Ooh. in a storm Ten grand, but more more importantly, like the sweat and also and the yeah, like hours. So, and I'm look every time I look at them, I'm going, okay, that's me for two weeks top, like uh, at mm-hmm. least uh, come come next uh, May, I'm just going to be down there with 
with yep. with willow cuttings with yep. uh, with everything I can and just going going to town and hoping that they that we get an, a lean enough rain season so that it'll the water just lets up and they get all, everything that gets to establish their roots. Yeah. Um, Wait, did you grow up in a rural environment? I grew up in the suburbs uh, in it, Ann Arbor, Michigan. Right. You know, our mutual good friend Matt Bowder. Mm-hmm. who I've said many times, and I'll say it again, is my favorite musician in New York. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he's I'd say he's one of one of the most musical people I know just mm-hmm. in general. I remember him telling me that whatever that high school that you guys went to. Ann Arbor Pioneer High School. <laughs> and or, or, or was he talking about, you the, know. The yeah. one where, where like Wolf Eyes were there and Andrew WK. And, oh, c- Community High. Yeah. Community High, yeah. But the way he described his <laughs> uh, first encounters with you was that he had begun to play the saxophone, but that you, as as a teenager, showed like, he what he learned from you was that playing saxophone could be cool. Uh, th- he says he tells that story. I don't remember it quite, quite that way. <laughs> I don't remember the coolness um, exuding from my my presence well, at he, that. Point. He was very perceptive. <laughs> no, I just remember. I mean, I was. I was, uh, you know, I was first chair or whatever in the symphony right. band, and I, I, I think I was a senior, a junior or senior. I can't remember which year that was. Um, but yeah, his mom brought him in and brought him over to the music wing, and then my, then the the director brought me over and was like, take him around, and I got to be the guy. So you were like his like big brother, little brother, yeah, in an official. <laughs> Although it's not what I felt like. Right. I was like, here's this cool, the cool fucking. He's in the fucking short dead dudes. <laughs> he was in a little. <laughs> he was in a punk band called the Short Dead Dudes. Wait, was that like, was the actual name of the band. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you didn't tell me that. Oh yeah, he sang and played guitar um, in uh, in the Short Dead Dudes. I thought Matt was the shit. Yeah, did you? Yeah. I mean, he was playing tenor at that time. Alto. Right. I think we were. Yeah, it was all you, alto. You started on alto. I started on alto. Um, yeah, when I was nine, started playing tenor at some point. Um, and there was no clarinet before that. Nope, didn't start playing clarinet until my twenties. Yeah, bass clarinet, clarinet came after college. Mm-hmm. Um, baritone I started playing really heavily when I was about 18 right like, yeah 18 not, it was 17 because when I first um, when I first got to University of Michigan um, my uh, you know professor uh, Donald Sinta my professor then he kind of put me into a bunch of they fast-tracked me a bit um, so I was scholarship in there and it was classical um, focus and classical they, on alto or on or, alto, but yeah. then immediately I got put in the graduate sax quartet um, on Barry, and um, and uh, so I was playing a lot of baritone, a lot of alto, playing some soprano as well. In in, a, in uh, I mean the repertoire for classical saxophone is like not that broad, is it? It isn't. It isn't right. that broad. No, I mean, hence that I started branching out really quickly <laughs> and did not end um, my four years where everyone had assumed I would when I started. Right, but you were studying classical. You weren't learning to blow over changes, kind of thing. I eventually started to do that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there was no Ed Sereth was running the the jazz program, but it was more of the the focus was more on the creative arts orchestra, which was more of an improvising ensemble. Uh-huh. And I'd started playing in the improvising ensemble when I was a senior in high school. And and so kept on doing that and playing mostly alto, some berry, some some soprano. And improvising ensemble is you're working on standards? Or? No, 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 no. It's free. And free we, improv. Yeah, we did some pieces of Ed's, which were more like kind of uh, modal jazz with a lot of imp- odd meter and stuff. Uh-huh. But but um but no, it was mostly just a, a a free improvisation. And was that your introduction to free improvisation? I had been doing a lot of it. Um, 
through in high school, I was in a like a kind of rock band that kind of made messes here and there and played stuff that was right. you know in that was really fucking a weird mix of some things that I can't even I don't even feel comfortable going into, um, and uh, it was not cool again, uh, <laughs> and uh, and then and then so but but as soon as I, I auditioned for um, scholarship, I think in my junior year and then they accepted me and so then i just was like i'm going to that school so i started talk, uh, talking to the professors and they um put, they let me take take that get get into that ensemble early yeah so it was it was great i was i was um, playing with um all these guys who i had seen play in in the scene growing up and i'd seen on, you know, gone to their concerts uh at the university and now i was playing with them people that you admire yeah, yeah yeah like matt dufresne was this fucking monster this absolute absolute um uh, stellar force on on the saxophone and he was an amazing improviser but also just an incredible um classical player um, you were playing barry in this group barry exclusively in the creative arts orchestra yeah I was playing alto mostly in, when I started out in high school, and then I got in um, um, my freshman year of college. I was, you know, I, I started playing a lot more, a lot more baritone, and I was playing barry in, in everything. And who were, so, what were the first sax players like outside of the these guys that you know who were a few years older? Who were the sax players that that made you feel like you wanted to take part in in music on that level? Um, I was. Um, through high school, I'd I'd listened to a lot of Zorn. Yeah, um, I'd been, I'd been, I'd kind of got through. I got to got to Zorn around the time I was fourteen from dealing with. Uh, I mean, I, I guess like I listened to Faith Faith No More when I was twelve or something mm-hmm. like that, thirteen, and then found Mr. Bungle, found it's John Zorn. It's fucking crazy how many of us. Yeah, yeah, found our our way yeah. through that very yeah. quick little path. Uh huh. Quick little path. So many of and us. And then immediately went to you, so you go to the Tower Records, you look at you find the Zorn section, and you realize Jesus, this guy's, this guy's got done a few a, things <laughs> happening <laughs> already in ninety two, ninety three. Yeah. He's got some shit happening, and um and then so I mean I remember I got a a, a record of an early record of his with Fred, with Frith. Uh-huh. The Still, Art of Memory. St- yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. You know it. Yeah, yeah, Still yeah, one of course. my favorite fucking records of all time. Um, I, These I, things I, are like Rosetta Stones. Yeah. Of like I, a free I, improvisation, I of musicality. I adore it. I adore that. Yeah. Um, and so, um, so yeah, uh, John was huge in, in those years. But then, uh, you know, also got, um, you know, in terms of... Um, just like uh, more of the old guard, the legends. Um, my professor, my teacher at the time, started giving me all of the standards. You know, all the train that I needed to listen to. And um, but did you? I'm but, sorry uh, to interrupt, but did did you find yourself kind of working backwards? Yeah, that's what. I, mm-hmm. I'll just I just want to make a statement for a second about John. Um, is when you get to know him, you realize that in a lot of ways, despite what people's perception of him is, he's like a real traditionalist, like a real. Yeah. Traditionalist, yeah, and I've learned so much about music through him. Uh, fr- from the perspective of like, hey man, you can't really deal with that, you shouldn't be dealing with that until you first dealt yeah. with this, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. whether that's like you know, really dealing with Charlie Parker or really dealing with uh, anything. With, he's like that with all music, with improvisation, with classical music, yeah, yeah. I, I haven't spent a whole lot of time with John, but the little that I have, I, I've just loved. He's such a lovely man, I, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, have had a great time. So you began um, to check out Coltrane. 
Yeah, um, everything. What I settled on, and I guess to to truncate the story and to to the people who who definitely became like the big like iconic sounds for me were um, uh, Threadgill. Yeah, was was and is still maybe the the biggest influence in terms of the sound and also compositionally everything about it. He just carved this this uniqueness. There's nothing that there is nothing that sounds like him mm-hmm. um, as a as an improviser or uh, as a composer, and that to me was um, not only really um, it was intoxicating as a listener. But but also just conceptually as something I wanted to emulate and, I, and as as a path that I saw as something that you could you know if this is a life you could live that's what I those are the things I've always been drawn to just kind of doing finding a way to just carve your own personality into your artwork yeah, yeah. you um, sounds like you knew pretty early on that the saxophone was your tool. I knew the saxophone was my, was my tool in a in a ridiculous way when I was five. Um, um, just i was i was you know we're we're of an age probably i maybe i'm a little maybe a couple years older yeah um roughly the same um but so my older brother and i were the first batch of kids that was watching mtv when we were really small and um and i remember sitting down i think i was five years old and there was that um men at work song uh who can it be now with the Uh sax um solo and i just remember um my brother my older brother had just started his fifth grade um, that was when the music program in, in school started. Yeah. And so, and he brought home a flute and I remember looking at it and going like, what the fuck are you thinking? Like, why would you want to play this when I, little? <laughs> when I get to pick my instrument yeah. when I'm your age, I'm picking this fucking saxophone. Yeah. Don't you see how cool it is? Right, 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 right. <laughs> it's on the TV. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, yeah. So when I got to fifth grade and they said, what do you want to play? I said, saxophone. And they went, okay, well, we only have we only have two of them, so you have to put your name into a hat. There's ten of ten, ten of you who want to play it, and only two saxes to give to people. Yeah. So um, I was like, well, I, I can't lose, and I totally lost. <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't and win that lottery. I didn't win that lottery, but I won the lottery in life because my parents just went, okay, you really want to do that. We'll support a thing that you really want to do. And they went out and got me a cheap Bundy. And just said, this means that you need to actually do this. So yeah. we, we did this for you. You're going to need to make this serious. So they got you a teacher to go along with the Bundy? No, they just, yeah. they got me a teacher to go along with the Selmer when that, ha- when that happened when I was um, uh, 15. Sure. And that's when everything went from being like, I, I could barely play scale. I mean, I was a f- decent player f- for playing in the band. You know, mm-hmm. I wasn't terrible, but... Um, but I was it was really limited. But you were I, able to I, go back to the band director and say, guess what? I got a sax anyway, so I'm gonna play it. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. Okay. They said, okay, we'll just throw you in there too. Yeah. Um so that so I played in the band through those years and I and I had a couple friends who um I would like we'd play like rock covers and shit in the garage, so as you do. And um and uh and then when I was fifteen I was still playing horn and my parents my mom said, Well, if this is something that you're actually serious about um, we should. I'm going to talk about getting you a teacher and get you a real, real instrument. Are your parents musicians? No, but they both. My 
my father, they're both terribly inclined. My father um, has a beautiful voice and was a singer in a rock band in college. And my mom always wanted to play piano, and you can tell that she has something in her. But um, how did, I mean, this might be a dumb question, but I'm thinking, I mean, I'm comparing what you're telling me to my own experience of, of getting, you know, convincing my mom to buy me an instrument at a young age. Like, how did they know that there was a difference between a Selmer and a Bundy? Or that, She did her research. Yeah? She would talk to people, she would go to the university and talk she, to people. She and would ask say, hey, them. my son's getting really into this, like... Yeah. What's no, they were um, they were as selfless as parents can be. I mean, yeah. they, my father was a research scientist. He Are didn't they both make. Still around? He didn't. Yeah, okay. they, I mean, they didn't. He never made money, um, but they didn't do anything with the little. We had a tiny little house, right. um, and uh, and they just saved everything. And so when shit came up, like you know, it's time to for so and so to start football, or or you know, or this one wants to start playing this instrument, or they just you know they went. They went all in. Had and a little bag sure, of money they could put towards made it. Made sure that 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 those things were taken care of. Um, and so and and then at the same time, that always came with more. You know, I think more unspoken than spoken. But you know, we're gonna hook this up and make this possible for you. And that and that means you fucking better put your ass into yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, that, those stories. I, and I did, and that was that 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 moment. The fifth, when I was fifteen, and I got a teacher. In a year, I went from barely knowing scales, barely being able to to read music. In a year, I went from that to to playing um, and winning competitions on my yeah. like, college rep. So my teacher got me got me turned. Are you still in touch with that really teacher? Quick. Yeah, yeah. He's out in Arizona, um, Christopher Carveston. Yeah, he's he's wonderful. Special oh, guy. Oh, I'm everything. Very special guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. fucking amazing player. Holy shit! It's... There's a thing on YouTube that you can watch of his or or just hear of his. What is it called? It's just his name, but I think it says something like, um, something like violin, saxophone, something. It's, it's some. I forget what the title of the the clip is, but it's him playing these etudes. In altissimo on an uh -huh. alto saxophone, it's absolutely unreal. Like some Lenny Pickett shit. Uh, Pause. <laughs> I love Lenny. This is the classical. Gotcha. The classical right, 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 end right. of the spectrum, right? Where it's just utter fucking control, surgical, pure, control. just like if you yeah. looked at the waveform, it would just be a straight yes. line. Pure beautiful, yeah. like 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 I'll like yeah, I'll, like someone would violin do violin yeah. just like just that fucking beautiful high con controlled it but yeah, so I, still I, I want to ask I'm, like what, what do you mind over if, if you had to like, what is it about the way that that he taught or was able to um, sort of draw out of you that, that you think uh, made it such a successful experience I think it was I, I've thought about this a lot I think it was two things to it one he he figured out early on that although I didn't wasn't really show I don't think I was showing that I knew very much. He figured out that I could know quite a bit and I could What was that based on? I have no I have no idea. Okay. But um because what the first thing he asked me to do, he said, Okay, well, I want you to learn this piece of music. Do you know this piece of music? And I said, No, I don't need this piece of music. And so he and it was um and it was um the Creston uh sonata. Mm -hmm. Um which is not a particularly um advanced piece but it is like a college piece of repertoire um and i had no business playing it but um he just he didn't tell me that i didn't 
He didn't mm-hmm. tell me this is really hard, but I'm thinking that you might be able to pull it off. He just put it in front of me and said, this is what you should be doing. This is what you should know how to do. Um, and he just did that with everything, with scales, with etudes. This is what you should know how to do. And he also figured out, I think, that that mostly I was ear trained at that point and I wasn't great. I wasn't a great reader. So he did a lot of training wheels for me. He'd record himself playing things Um for the mm-hmm. first few months. So you could hear so what they're supposed to sound what, like. Yeah, um, right. And then, because I could emulate things very quickly. Um, physically, I've always been very good at emulating sounds sure. um, by, 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 by hearing and, and, and also by seeing the way that somebody's body moves while they're making a sound. Sure. I can. The pressure that they're. E- yeah, more easily it, yeah. emulate it myself. And, and so it was a combination of that and then, and then, um, and then understanding that I was the kind of person who didn't deal well with, um, with, uh, with kind of, um, uh, demonstrative sort of professorship. Um, somebody who came, who was, who was really strict with me. Mm-hmm. Um, but rather if you were disappointed by, by my, um, by lack of, lack of practice or something. And you just simply said, well, you, you didn't practice. So what am I supposed to do with this? Well, mm-hmm. we're just going to have to go and well, I mean, it's kind of a waste, but we'll just do what we did last week. And until you know anything else and, and he acted dejected and he acted disappointed. And that was the fucking kiss of death for me. I, I hated that. And so I would go home and I would practice all week until I knew that that would never happen again. I mean, it sounds like he was drawing better musicianship out of you by zeroing, zeroing in on arguably what was a weak spot. Absolutely. <laughs> That's kind of amazing. Yeah. No, he's 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 brilliant. Yeah. I don't know if he, he if if I don't know if he was consciously thinking I'm going to do this with cuz this is what the kid needs right. or if it was just simply just the synergy of that that being his particular passive aggressive way of teaching. And but it is it passive worked. aggressive or is it like a, like a like a true leadership skill or like a It was perfect. Yeah. It was a perfect matchup regardless but i don't know if it on his i'd have to ask him if it was if on his part it was actually or even conscious. if he yeah if it, i mean i heard my wife on the phone the other day um it was in like you know there's all these conversations happening these days uh, you know about gender roles and and she, you know she's an architect and she had to get on a call with a gc a general contractor about something they'd fucked up and i know my wife's a tough broad um, and I hear her on the get on the phone, and she's talking in this like really sort of like infantilized, like girly thing. And I was like, I'm like, man, I'm really. I'm like in my head, I'm like, Angie, you shouldn't be doing that. Like you're a strong woman. What the fuck are you doing? Uh, but then I continue listening to the conversation, and within two minutes, I hear that she has gotten all the upper hand in the conversation. She gets off the phone and got exactly what she needed out of that yeah. contractor. So mm-hmm. it's like, well, she knows exactly the the quickest way to get yeah. from point A to point B. Yeah can't argue with it mm-hmm. and that's kind of like what what, what uh that's like a key to success in a lot of ways we are robots everybody yeah. has their their own their their particular um uh combination um that you know kind of in in the most cynical way of putting it it's all it, it's everything every interaction is manipulation um huh. you don't have i don't i don't i mean it's just the language that i guess has nasty connotations but it right but in a in a removing that connotation it it really it laid bare all interaction really is that right manipulating one another huh <laughs> so <laughs> we have, how long did you study with this guy chris chris is that his name? <laughs> christopher yeah um yeah. i studied with him all high school for four years yeah mm-hmm. and, and then um 
were you putting together? So wait, I, I first, you lived in the Bay Area, did you not? I did. I, I yeah. moved from Ann Arbor to, to San Francisco and lived there for six years. And then after moved, school? After school, College. Yeah. And you thought that was going to be the place? I knew it was going to be the place for a bit. I, I always kind of knew the trajectory. I was going to move to to um, to the Bay Area because Tom Waits lived in the Bay Area, and I would at some point meet him and convince him that he needed to play with me. And then, so that was in the cards for you. I it was in your cards. Of, it, was, it was part of my plan. <laughs> I mean, my first hearing you, and I'm sure this is true for a lot of yeah. people, was on Alice in Blood Money, yeah. and I remember specifically. Hearing the clarinet, I think I listened. I can't remember All which the of the two records green. I listened Probably. to first. I think you're on both of them. Yeah, but I heard the, the clarinet, and I was like, "Did he just like transport a clarinet from the '30s?" Like <laughs> the 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 sound of the recording, which was like Jakir King, I think. Uh, no, it was Oz, Oz Fritz. Right? Oz Fritz. Yeah. Plus the tone, and you know, Oz you're was such a genius. <laughs> he's like the genius. He tra- talk about fucking manipulation. I'll yeah. tell you another story about those sessions. Well, the thing is, it's like everything from sort of like the warbly tone that you're doing, like in the lower register of the instrument. It's like did they like, like that call was all, up the that was past all me. and have them like? <laughs> no, but it's like the perfect warble. It's like you that's know. just that's just me not being a clarinetist, and that's and that and that's how I play. <laughs> <laughs> but the the whole produ- the the whole presentation of it from like the sonic uh, uh, character that that uh-huh. Oz pulled out to it, it just like. I remember feeling like this is really convincing. <laughs> like, I don't mean that. That sounded weird, but I meant that as a compliment. <laughs> I'll take it that way. Yeah. Then. <laughs> Wait, what did yeah. Oz manipulated some some shit? No, that was um, there was Tom manipulated some shit. So he so one of the things that you figure out pretty quick, but not quick enough, is that he's not going to give you a lot of time to get accustomed to the songs. Right, he's going to give you no time. So. Um, one of the things I was overdubbing a lot on the first day. Um, Basic tracks were done. You were just kind of adding com- some flavors. I was coming in and doing all the the horn parts, and yeah. um, some of them I, were, I was replacing somebody else's stuff, and other ones I was just going for it. And on this song, um, on the song um, "All the World Is Green," I remember we were sitting in the control room, and I was uh, just um, we were nodding along and. And he said, what do you think? And I said, you know, I got an idea. I want to play clarinet on it. And I'm just going to go and I'll, I'll play around your your the verses. And then I'll when the key change happens, I'll do a solo. And then I'll come back into the supporter role and be out. And I'll, I'll just can let me go in there and just feel my way around it. And I'll check it out. And mm-hmm. then I'll come back in and see what you liked. And we'll, we'll take it from there. And I go in and I, t- and I took that take. And, um, and then I remember finishing and looking in. As I was about to go in there to say, "What about that? Did you like?" and let's do another few to get a real one, and Tom just goes, "That was a one." <laughs> Not a dry eye in here, and yeah. so it was like then, and so at that point, it still wasn't dawning on me that he was just going to do that all the time. That like that you were you're a one take guy, yeah, yeah. Um, but he only hires one take guys. That's what you begin <laughs> to realize, like Rebo. If like it took you Greg longer, if, yeah, there was a yeah. If it took longer than that, he would go, he'd he'd sour on you. Sure. Uh, <laughs> so um, and then for Alice, it was just some trickery, dickery shit that I still think was brilliant. And I don't know who did it, if it was Tom or if it was Oz, but somebody. Um, we did that. We cut that early in the morning. I had uh, it was my friend Eric Perney on bass, myself and Tom, and uh, I was in a in a um, in an ISO booth. 
and we had gone through and done everyone's monitor mix, headphone mix, and uh, and I got mine where I wanted it. And then somewhere between me finishing that, us doing the sound check, and then pressing record, uh, Oz turned my mix of me way up in my headphones. Mm. So when I started playing with everyone else, in order to hear everyone, you I had played. to play real low, real soft. Yeah. And so a lot of and so that Alice stuff, a lot of the real like the Ben Webster stuff that's happening. Uh -huh. I mean, that's how I play already. But it was to the to the degree that it got there, and just all of that. And you get something like the breathiness of it, and it's like you can really yeah. That was um ample. The my natural tendency to play like that was um, enhanced, let's say, by the fact that somebody jacked me in my headphones. That's unbelievable, yeah. man. That is like like you. I feel like a lot of people I know, because you know, I'm a lot of, around a lot of improvisers, don't ever really get the chance to work with producers. And yeah. when you work with, especially someone who's at like just this, like Buddha like place, which I, you know, I've never met Oz, but from his work, like I'm gonna go ahead and assign him to that mental. Yeah. <laughs> like there, there is a lot of that sort of trickery. I think it, so much of it is, and again, it's manipulation. It's just knowing certain things that, and you learn them over the course of many, you know, just all sorts of um, experimentation. You try yeah. them out with people, and you wonder, okay, well, if that if that person reacted in this way, I wonder if this person will react the same way or in a similar way, and you just keep on developing these techniques. And I mean, it's the same thing with with anything. You 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 try certain things out on stage, certain things feel musically right to you certain things flop and don't feel right uh -huh. to you certain things get a rise out of the band you know get a drummer to to react to you in a certain way and so that just you know subconsciously or consciously gets um you learn from all those those that all that minutia all those tiny little moments um what what works what doesn't right and and, and so as a producer you're just you're acquiring all those techniques but in but rather than like the apparatus, the whole process is your instrument rather right. than just the, the one X. And there's also, I mean, you know, it, it, it's such a vague, like there's, there's so, despite the <laughs> fact that like, there's really interesting, like, you know, drum miking techniques that like, you know, certain people have, you know, perfected and yeah. taught the rest of us. Like, so much, it's so much more esoteric than being an instrumentalist in a lot of ways. You know, you know instantly if you're playing in in tune or out of tune. You know instantly, you know if you fucking are playing behind the beat. You know, for for the most part. You know, some people aren't always so good. About that. <laughs> but like at some point, if you're the, if you're if this record says produced by, it's like you know that you are taking full responsibility for the sound. Like I've played, in, I've been on sessions before, where I and it's not my session, so I'm just kind of letting things go. But like, I'm kind of, huh? How come the engineer didn't come in and like let the guitar player know he's out of tune? It's kind of. You know, and it's like, and then I put myself in that position. I'm like, well, I don't know if I would do that. I don't know if I would. Maybe he, maybe he didn't notice, or maybe he right. didn't, or maybe he wanted it that way. I don't know. Yeah. yeah, it's a it's a trip. Yeah. How did you meet Tom Waits? Um, I mean, that is like to me. I mean, one of my all time heroes. Yeah, it was, it was my life. It was my life's goal to play with Tom Waits. Mm -hmm. I had been a just an like an adoring fan of the music since you know late in high school but to a degree that you know one of those things where i heard i think it might have been black it might have been 93 right when i started college that i like bone first, machine um no black rider just came out in 93 yeah. and i think that that was the first one i heard and just wore it out just spun it for for months and and, and during the course of that time picked up every record that he ever made mm -hmm. um and 
I, I don't, I mean, there was a stretch where I just didn't listen to anything but. Right. Um, and so I, um, we had to talk about that. Um, you and Tom? Yeah. At the end of the day, uh, I had, we had, we had spent, you know, a good 10 hours, um, tracking and everything went really well and uh, i didn't i guess i didn't know how well but i was kind of signing paper you know signing paperwork with the producer and he was like man you know everything went really well and i went how do you know and he's like you're still here motherfucker <laughs> really he's like oh yeah if you if, if tom didn't like he would have figured out an excuse to get you gone before lunch yeah um and so <clears throat> tom was helping me out with um my horns out to my car and um and uh and said something to the degree to the degree of um, it's, he said, and this was it, at the time. It was just really it was blowing my mind to get this kind of a compliment from the person who I had looked up to musically so much. Um, but he said something to, to the degree of, you know, you have a, you have an incredible sense of lyric, and I, I simply adore how much, how, how perfectly you were able to play around within and and um, and in um, and in conversation with with the, all the with all the vocals yeah. um, especially as in an overdub and capacity um and and I was like well in a in a strange sort of you know kind of um feedback loopy sort of cyclical way um I grew up I learned how to be a musician from listening to your the way that you are a musician so mm-hmm. um me coming back in and feeding that back into you, it, it just yeah, like you... it makes perfect sense to me yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't. I forget where what the question was right before I took that tangent. It was just how, how you first. How did you oh. meet him? Um, so when I first got to town, <clears throat> I was doing. You know, Stuart came out there with me, and uh, the rest of our band. Stuart Bogey. Yeah, yeah. Stuart Bogey, my my best. The dude. Oh man, <laughs> that fucking guy. Um, and so we were, you know, we were broke. We were playing every show we could possibly get, and I was doing. A, I was playing in all the. You know, playing all the improvised shows I could. I was playing some solo shows, and um, and I I met a few a few improvisers at one at some solo show, and then started playing in a couple of things with them. And I played this one improv show with with some guys, um, one of which, one of whom was Matthew Sperry. I don't know if you ever knew that him. That name seems very familiar to me. So tremendous bass player um, who tragically uh, uh, lost his life in a bike accident, a car. Act, you know, car hit him on his bicycle. Mm-hmm. Um, when uh, it was not very long after we met, maybe two years. Um, so we we played that show together, and and it went well. And we hung out afterward, and as as you do, we, you know, we were talking about how we we're going to do all sorts of what other the, things, what the future, all the, plans the, 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 the rosy uh-huh. future, had in store and um, and then you know, we didn't we didn't talk or play for a month or so, but. What was happening on the side was that Matthew had been contacted by Tom's people, and I forget how they got in touch with Matthew, but through somebody else in the scene to come in and start doing some bass work. And then Tom was not happy with whoever was doing the horns at the time, so asked Matthew who he should look to. And Matthew, after just that one experience with me, mm-hmm. um, said, I think you should try this guy, Colin. So, uh, so um Tom and Kathleen called me up, and mm-hmm. and so one random morning, I woke up on the couch in my bathroom. <laughs> I didn't answer the phone, and I let it go to the to to the answering machine. This is the age of answering machines, and I hear her voice, Kathleen which I, Brennan, which I knew. Um, 
and uh, and then she said her name, and and I and I just was like, "You've got to be fucking kidding!" Did you just let it record, or did you run? I over let, the phone? No, I let it record, and as it was recording, I ran through my apartment, screaming to my other roommates who were all asleep. I was like, "It's happening!" It's happening. <laughs> <laughs> That's fucking amazing. <laughs> That's the best shit. Yeah. Only, only, it only was when I finally, to get out to the studio was a long drive up north into the woods and it was just a long, windy road, um, like old logging road in the middle of the redwoods. And um, right before I got to the studio, I remember thinking to myself, oh shit, man, if you fuck this up, you're going to kill yourself. <laughs> Like, could you, right? Because if it doesn't go well, you're you're right like, at the precipice. You're, <laughs> <laughs> you're just <laughs> the rest of life is gonna be long. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah destiny. Oh, it's gonna go one of two ways. Yeah, tragically yeah. or heroically. Yeah, yeah. Good thing. Good I'm glad thing you I didn't was... kill yourself. Absolutely. But you would have had to. I think I, I mean, would just had a really long shitty. You know, um, I was about to say second half, but right. probably much. Well, maybe it would have just been a second half. I mean, it's one thing to walk <laughs> off a gang, uh, a gig with some shame. You're like, I, you know, I <laughs> fucked that up, you know, or whatever, man. I was, I wasn't into that music anyway. But when you walk the shame from like, this is the only music that's mattered to me for the last ten years. <laughs> that shit, man. Yeah. Are you still in touch with him? No, I haven't talked to him yeah. for many years. Yeah. Yeah. You're okay with that, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Did uh. So when did you? I, I want to talk about the solo thing because there are, you know, a lot of people, a lot of uh, instrumentalists, a lot of improvisers, you know, do a solo thing mm-hmm. to try it out. Maybe they'll make a record, they'll do a couple of shows, but and then there are people that stick with it and do record after record and concert after concert. I mean, at this point, I've made three or four solo records. I've done easily at least three or four hundred solo shows. To me, it's a very important part of the trajectory that mm-hmm. I know for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Is going to be an exploration. Clearly, it's something that means a lot to you. Mm-hmm. When did you first realize it was something that was going to mean a lot to you? In college, I did my first solo concert that could be um, could be likened to what I do now. Um, I think I was nineteen. I think my my sophomore year yeah. of college, and uh, started to do. It was a weird set. Uh, I needed to do I needed to do a a um, performance every every year, and so the previous one had been an all classical repertoire um, uh, program, and then this one I did some classical repertoire, I did some jazz, and I did some totally solo, just me sort of sound based stuff or more lyrical. I did some. There was some circular breathing stuff on it, just the very, very beginnings of of what would eventually become the first song on the, my first record that came out in like two thousand and seven. Um, and then I did, I did some. I think I did a, I did a really weird kind of deconstruction of a standard. I think it was around midnight. Hmm. Um, I did a deconstruction in multiphonics and vocalization um, um, augmentation of that of that melody and, and form. Mm-hmm. Um, and remember just getting completely lost in that, loving the exploration of the instrument, loving the, the, the seemingly like endless sonic possibilities of harmonizing with your throat and, and, and the, and the, just the acoustic, um, multiphonic, uh, potential right. uh, in, of the instrument. Yeah. And this was on, uh, Barry? alto and alto? tenor. Yeah. I think, I don't think I played any Barry on that, but I, I, I might be wrong. That's right. so long ago. Um, 
and and I started so I started playing solo concerts then. Um, I, I I kept on doing it in in San Francisco. I did it quite a bit in San Francisco. Um, I would do a few a year, and which led to really really pretty maybe maybe two or three years in. I started. Uh, I got approached by someone who was curating a series at the National Shrine of Saint Francis Assisi. Uh, which is just still one of the most glorious, I think maybe the most glorious place I've ever mm-hmm. played, just acoustically phenomenal. And um, so they asked me to play on Easter Sunday. Oh my God! And play in this in this shrine for for this concert series that is in the middle of the afternoon, and um, which I thought was hilarious that like the least godly human on the planet would step <laughs> up on Easter and play some of the most ridiculous music. Yeah. Um, and so I, I felt. You know, I was I was in my mid twenties, young you know mid twenties, and I had a little bit of of um, of apprehension, but I think about the religious aspect of it, of of the of yeah of the possibility that I would be stepping on the the toes, kind of as it as it were, of the dudes who worked there, of the monks who were huh. who were currently walking around the 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 audience with braziers and right, right. um and uh but but mostly at that age it was just like fuck it <laughs> <laughs> y'all ready for this yeah <laughs> and so i i did my thing i played my my solo concert which at that point was a mix it was a, it was very skeletal um in, in in terms of form there was there was definitely improvisation but there were were um there were uh Kind of like the skeletal frame sure. of, of of a progression, as far as the how I would construct the whole set from, and where from it would one begin place to and another. Where it would yeah. end. Um, and uh, I did it, and then after it was done, the monks came back and told me how much they appreciated it, how much they enjoyed it, and several of them told that they they made. Um, I wish I could remember which moments they which which. Um, passages they were referring to but they they did refer to them by by name and number mm-hmm. um they're like this one section reminded me of you know this at, you know part of the john gospel of john and and so it was it was this moment that really um it was quite it was really powerful for, for me yeah because it wasn't they didn't shun me they didn't feel in any way as though that music had no place in in their their most in their holiest of holies, you know, the, in in the in they the, were genuinely most, delighted by this yeah, unexpected mm-hmm. thing, and we could find this common ground in my expression and in their appreciation of it in their space, and so and I and I really I I loved that, and it it did like you know in like so many other moments in in uh, life with that music and with other music, you just get you get what you need to to get you to the next to the next phase to the next it's a little bit of wind in your sail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, so I did. Though I did, they invited me back to do a few of those. So I really? did Easter like three years in a row, um, and uh, and and then I continued. And when I moved to New York um, shortly after, I started playing a few solo concerts here and there in New York. And uh, then a um, really lovely dude with a small label named Alec Dartley asked me after a concert if I wanted to put out a record on his label mm-hmm. and I fucking jumped at the opportunity because nobody had ever asked me that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so I made, I made a, he made it happen. You know, he, he, he get, got me, you know, a few days in the studio and I went and just did what I made the record that I had been wanting to make. Which for. record was that? Volume one. Is that the one, uh, with where the you boat put, on the front with the mics all over the room? 
Mm. Well, they're all. So I mean, there's a there's a quote unquote mics all over the room approach to (laughs) everything from the first one. But yeah, the first one I did it. with Joel Hamilton, the man um, over at Studio G, the G, Joel, the yeah, homie. Man. It yeah. was so much fun. It was so much fun. So it was just me barreling in there and going, "Okay, I want to, you know, I've got all these, all this, all these sounds, all that, all, all this music, but I don't want it to just, I don't, don't want to just throw up a stereo mic in front of it because right. I don't want it to just pale in comparison to a live show. I don't want to try to mimic a live performance and to have it just be, oh, it's better live. I want this to be a different." experience i want the medium to to i want this the you know, the, the recorded version of these of these songs to be something that is specific and special mm-hmm. um in the recorded medium so i want to record them in these ways where we um because my vantage point you you know this being a player of one instrument your vantage point you get all of the the minutia of the sound and 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 there's kind of a hierarchy of the sound mm-hmm. that's different for you than it is for everyone else and it's is uh it's especially different than it is different for you and your ears than it is for the mic that's put right in front of the bell that immediately cancels out all of the other things mm-hmm. uh, aspects of the sound and so I wanted to not lose everything in fact I wanted to I wanted to grab everything as isolated as I possibly could so then I could then kind of surrealistically enhance like augment the um the the mix and bring certain things more in the mix mm-hmm. than they were um in real life or or you know um and and to completely uh, create a new stereo image by di- by you know deconstructing and reconstructing them in in a different way and so we we did that with that record mostly by spot miking we had some really really close Miking of parts of the instrument to get um, crispy, kind of uh, more percussive aspects. Um, we put a mic right up to my throat to try to pick up more of the, what the vocals were doing. Um, we had mic buried down in the bell. We had mics all around the room, different mm-hmm. different um, things that would trigger open if I got louder. And so we did a few different um, uh, d- different methods to try to uh, approach that. Which then, when I did volume two. Um, it expanded into. I had started using an internal microphone, which picked up more of the sub um, frequencies. Uh, started to use uh, contact microphones on and the what, actual body. And of the once instrument. you start going down that road, you know the the musical possibilities open up a thousand times. It's an, it's enormous. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and then and but also, I mean, and using a, a throat mic, uh, a contact mic on my on my vocal cords, and then also you know just a myriad of mics all over all over the the room and close to the instrument and then so for volume three it expanded into um kind of that a little bit more realized um and 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 in some bigger spaces and but it wasn't really until the my my most recent record that came out in april that um that one I did my myself i i engineered it all i tracked yeah. myself engineered it all and mixed it all um and um and that one i feel like i pushed more i got more invasive mm-hmm. with regard to if you i mean i had all of these um configuration my configurations uh, that would vary from tune to tune but i should have taken pictures of them they were so yeah, beautiful yeah you should have yeah they were so beautiful Th- there's um, yeah i had names for them um <laughs> there was one that was a harley cuz cuz um there was a you know i had i have a pair of 
spot DPAs that really just I mean, to to in order to play all these in the studio and and get the the right performance, I would have to remain completely motionless because I'd re- literally be in a framework of uh-huh. microphones, almost like traction. Um, so there'd be a pair of spot DPAs that is pointing within inches of each of my nostrils. Um, and then, you know, the, obviously the, the contact mics, but then, um, then tiny little, um, DPAs on all over the body of the horn pointing at specific holes. Right. Um, and then, and then a different, different arrays of different, different, you know, uh, types of mics, either close and far from the horn itself, depending on the piece, depending on what. The, you know the volume levels depending on what I what it was I wanted and so for each song some of them took a little less time but mostly and I think on average it would take about five days of recording and mixing and like experimentation with mics pre's and placement to find exactly what was working in the way that I wanted it to well, and then how much of those uh, you know uh, configurations would then inform what your musical choice was or what the piece was going to be the pieces were all pretty much written by the yeah. time but though those certain ones when I certain things when you have when you when you start to record um, uh, it's usually the contact mics that throw throw a, like a little bit of um, get, get get sideways a little bit because you might hear the percussion in a certain way from your vantage point, but as soon as that happens, um, and the and the the actual contact mic starts to really amplify the um, the upstroke of some keys and the combination of, cert- of 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 multiple keys doing multiple up and down strokes, um, there are a couple different th- uh, songs that that my understanding of them rhythmically changed a little bit once that started, once I started to hear those feeds. And so then, yeah, um, I maybe informed the, um, the writing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, mostly I, I, I have the, the, the composition 90 to 95% done by the time I'm in that space and, 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 uh, if, if not more, mm-hmm. and, I'm, and it's just really just getting the sounds and executing because I don't really like to be fucking around. I mean, it's something that I've appreciated about all of your records and it's something that I've tried to do a lot and something I wish, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to sound disparaging. I wish more people were doing, which is, and I'm talking specifically within the realm of improvised music, creative music, instrumental music, which is look to, uh, in, in some ways, what are very traditional studio techniques in the rock and pop world? Absolutely. Um, whether that means like recording section by section and stitching together the best versions of that, mm. uh, but more importantly, going section to section and mixing the record in such a way that the mix is telling a story. <laughs> and and I've something I've always felt, and I've made two records like this now. I'm working on one right now where I, I what I'm really aiming for is for the listener to be in my chair as much as possible. And if I'm playing a passage that is like, you know, especially on a clarinet where like the the higher up you go, the more likely you're going to break the note and have it squeak. And there is like a physical mental tension around playing in certain ranges, you know, and I want people to experience that, you know, there, that, that, that is very much like part of the musical experience or Mm -hmm. whether it's the sound of like a key click or the way that, uh, there's a percussive wind pop. If I hit this, you know, this trill key, Mm-hmm. And I, I I I think it's a really even though it can sound really foreign when you first listen to it as a recording, 
I think it's actually a really inviting way to allow people to listen to your music. Like you're really letting them know, like, like no, this is what I'm hearing. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I, I, a bit. I lost you at the very end there. Um, yeah. You mean just in terms of not trying to um, sanitize the, um... or just no, the opposite of like of going out of your way to really present like a doc, a document of recorded sound that it just has a lot more going on than a left right mix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. it's great. You know, if you have, and I've used this example a million times. You know, if someone was like. Hey, I just found this tape of, you know, Coltrane and Miles like free improvising a duo. Do you want to check it out? Should I do a crazy mix on it? I'd be like, fuck no, I want to hear it as is. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, yeah. But if you know, if you have these tools, I, I just feel like they, they can offer a musician the ability to really present the fullest version of what their idea is. In a way that a live concert couldn't. That well, that was the point of it for me. It's it, it was simply that I didn't I didn't then, nor do I now, want to try to to fall into that trap of of having of of having the live experience and the and the recorded experience in any be synonymous in any way other than the the fact that it is the same music. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't want to try to try to be um, emulating one with the other in, in any in any sense. I wanted them to be completely separate. So you're never going to recreate all of the things that make a live performance special. You're in the audience is there with you physically. They mm -hmm. they feel you because they because of all the ways that we are human and we empathize with one another. And then you and so there's this um, all of so all of that um, that just raw psychological. Um, phenomena that that happen uh, in the moment w when we're all together that's gone you lose all of that you lose all of the fact that acoustically all of those things are physically with the person's body if you if there's a sound system there's there's an amount of viscera that's mm -hmm. moved in that in that person all that is gone um the fa the fact that there's an audience of people communally all sharing this experience w with them th that all that's gone mm -hmm. when you you're stripping things down to um to the absolute bare essentials when, when it comes to the um, the recorded, and I always think of Gould um, when when I think about recording because I I I like to divorce the self, the personality entirely from it. And, mm -hmm. and what did he say that the the ideal um, audience to art, artist relationship is a one to zero relationship. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, you are gone. You are not there. It is someone else's experience. They are yeah. there with the music, and the music is now their experience. It's, it's now part of them. And it and 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 the way that they, um, what it conjures up, all of the things that it means to them, or potentially can mean to them, or can show them um, emotionally, intellectually, or otherwise, that's all based on their own particular set of life experience mm -hmm. musically and otherwise um and so approaching the the recording for these these songs i wanted to uh, you know i wanted to in no way try to emulate the live and the best way i could think to do that was by doing kind of this deconstructionalist reconstructionalist sort of method of of creating a a, a new i mean for lack of a better term analogy like a surrealistic um uh 
rendering of of a new three-dimensional space mm-hmm. wherein the music the songs could still be the songs it, it's not like the live experience you know the live music that i play is in any way different um in character in 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 um in form in uh, melody and all those things are absolutely intact um but but the way in which their experience is 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 um um is all uh, specialized um, or um, uh, idealized in the in the in the recorded medium, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and so so that path once I started down it now it's just that becomes something that's informed the making of the music. So yeah, now totally. there's there's a lot of things that I've done in the last record that really wouldn't work well as an acoustic. Piece in turn, you know, because there are things that I'm relying on my throat to do that, unless you were right up with me in my space, you wouldn't probably hear the the like very very subtle vocal lines. I mean, a lot of the music still still carries um, in an acoustic setting, and I still do uh, do that from time to time. But um, there are things that, because of the this invasive sort of miking um, uh, technique, that you can just it just it just opens up new um possibilities musically yeah um and compositionally and and um and i've so i've i've loved that and i this last record that i did is you know i i I've, I've been happy that every time i make another record i've never had that moment where i'm like well this is i don't like this as much as the last one but i every time i make a record i I say I remember I have a talk at some point and I and I and I remember um saying to my father at some point I, I, this is the best thing I've ever done. Yeah. You know, I will always have that moment um I know that that I'm 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 striking some bedrock that I haven't gotten to in the past um and that it, and that's it's something new is happening and that it's um and that it is worthwhile and it is pleasing uh to me and i think and i think and i and i think potentially to others um and then so all that being said the other aspect of it and i think that this is get, looping back to the original um topic of conversation the my you know the my house in the woods being around fucking running water yeah all the time being around that um, it never stops it's always in the present tense what yeah. is it jim harrison said that um running water uh is always in the present tense Um, um, for the same reason you can never step in the same river twice there you go yeah Um, and and there's some so there's something about that that is you know of course remarkably calming focusing um, and um, and a kind of cure for our kind of intrinsic music musician neuroticisms Mm -hmm. that um, I, I mean I feel as though we all um, and some of us more so than others, and I know that this is um, a you know, particular affliction of mine, um, just the constant um, contemplation of past and future um, event, past events and future p- possibilities, that is, is torturous. And it really, it, it gets back to, and th- that, is, that is suffering. That is the mm-hmm. definition of suffering that the contemplatives have been talking about for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And the cure for that is the present moment. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the only cure for it. And so with a lot of this music, I've been trying to manufacture in my own way a cure for that. For you personally. For me personally, but 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 I'm hoping that the and I and I and it seems as though the effect has been from what I've 
heard from people who, who take the time to tell me yeah. um, that, that it tends to be that, that, that intention that I've tried to imbue the music with has stayed rather intact. I would agree with that. Th- through their experience. I um, would agree with that. I, I think, and I don't mean to, to uh, minimize anything you just said or you in any way by saying this, I think masterful solo performers, that's a common occurrence. Like Music, is that is a part of what it is yeah, that we're all doing. I mean, yeah, but yeah, like yeah. My guy, my guy, you know, and I'm very, I feel very honored to have a relationship with him is Evan Parker. Uh, and I mean, I've cried yeah. many, I'm, tears at his concerts, at home listening to his music and it's that thing you're talking about where, we just did a, yeah. where I'm just I, I feel like I'm right there with him you know and it feels you know and I, I, I feel th- when it's over as it's happening I feel thankful towards him I feel thankful towards the music because it has left me feeling uh, more present more which means more vulnerable more opened up Absolutely. Um, and it's something I strive for as a listener it's something I strive for as a performer and it's you know like chasing that dragon you yeah know? man <laughs> yeah evan is is wonderful I, I was fortunate enough to get um the chance to play with him we did a duo in um guelph did he did he ago. play soprano he played soprano i played bass yeah that's a good we just, combo we, it was a great fucking combo we just yeah. sat there in this tiny little weird building and just improvised for an hour and it was spectacular it was just it was a beautiful feeling um the greatest order, yeah i mean I, I love him so much i'll show yeah. you some shit when i turn off the mics um, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> There, I got a piece of advice from him one time, and I'm sure it's because I'm already readying for what <laughs> I have so much reverence for him that like I'm I'm reading into it with all this meaning that was actually not there. But we were about to play a gig, and uh, I, I offered him a beer, and he goes, "No, always." Wine before the gig, beer after. <laughs> That's just, what I do too. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, you don't want to get all bloated before you get up there and no. blow your guts out. No, but it, I, it's one of those things that like I've kept like a little nugget in my pocket as just like a a, a oh, lesson in like temperance, yeah. you know. That's brilliant. I didn't know that that was a thing. I just thought it was part of my my own particular like. Well, motherfucker, you. Uh, this is, this sounds sorry to me. Clean, I like I like when I when motherfucker you. <laughs> That's my favorite way to start a conversation. <laughs> no, actually, I had a moment with you. I don't think you're not going to remember this. This is maybe five six years ago. We were both playing solo shows at, or no, you were playing with um, Trevor and Greg at uh, Grand um, that bar in Brooklyn. It used to be Lucky. Yeah, the Grand, Lucky Cat Grand, Grand Victory. Victory. Yeah, yeah. That was the first me trevor greg yeah so, yeah but i remember before the show it's like it's not the backstage but it's that little area off to the side of the stage where people store their you know bags and yeah. shit and you know i was getting ready to go on or you were getting ready to go on and and you were stretching and i was like huh what do you you always stretch out before a show and you were like yeah <laughs> i'm sure i said it just like no, that too no but you, you're right too because it, that's like the equivalent of being like oh you don't get fucking hammered before a show <laughs> I have gotten so many weird, have had so many weird moments at festivals, especially where I have a shared dressing room uh-huh. and there's just a band getting fucking hammered and I'm the nerd in the back doing yoga. Right. And everyone's just like, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> killing everybody's buzz. But it's, I'm, when I'm, I bring that up because, you know, I remember having this conversation with Fred Frith where he was like, yeah, always make sure that the batteries in your pedals are, you know, on full charge. Yeah, and it's like yeah, no shit. But it's like you are literally increasing the odds of having a great show by like fifteen to twenty percent immediately. Yeah, just yeah, yeah. by doing something like checking a battery, taking a stretch, not having that shot of bourbon before you go on. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I used to be more of the shot of bourbon before I go on guy. One um, shot's okay, but um, but those days ended um, years, fucking years ago. Um, 
nearly 10 years ago now, but um, uh, yeah, that was, it was it, it, at some point the physiology of an aging body just to starts to decide, you know, to tell you. That It'll it's, tell you what's going to happen. making some decisions for, yeah. for you. Um, and, uh, but in all honesty, honesty the the solo music took off so much of my my musicianship and the things that i can do um and the music that i can make now is because not only because of all the i mean obviously the 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 kind of practicing i did when i was young i mean i was like a 10 hour a day practicer when i first started college i mean i i, I, sh I was in the shed like crazy mm -hmm. so i had a strong foundation um but if i had kept being socially you know, um, as lubricated as I was when I was in my twenties, throughout all my thirties, and now my forties, I would be doing dog shit. I would be making not. I mean, the music would have gone nowhere. Um, and uh, and what? So what happened is I start, I got some real wake up calls from the body and the mind uh -huh. and the and the um, and my my whole psychological emotional state was just you know there these red fucking flags going pick off it, pick, and pick it make a choice right now and um and. Uh, yeah, this need if you're gonna if you're gonna try to pull off something that is already so physically demanding, the kind of music that I was making at that point, um, and you want to and you and you think you have some trajectory t towards digging further into this, mm -hmm. then you need to get healthy and you need to get, but not just healthy, but like exemplary, like you need to it needs to be exceptionally so. Um, so I had already started doing yoga. Um, I had already stopped smoking fucking thankfully um and then the, the drinking started to go away i started doing yoga before every show which turned things around quite a bit because when you're doing something that's really physically demanding and a lot of this um the what the big the big psychological fuck you with the with the solo stuff for me is that when i step inside of it seems it, for me it feels like i'm stepping inside of a piece and i am and i am then in I'm plugged into it for the ride. Sure, it's not that I get to do whatever with the music that I want, and if I feel bad or if it's, I'm in too much pain, um, I can just stop or go down a different path for something that that isn't quite so demanding. I'm in it until the song is done, and some of those things are like twenty minutes long. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and so, um, <clears throat> so I've got to be. Um, I'm sorry, I lost my track of thought. But I, you know, so once once I've plugged in, if if things are if if you're consumed with errant thought, and if you are unable to um, to dispatch or to stop constantly judging the quality of your pain mm -hmm. um, or your discomfort, um, or you're or you're unable to stop paying. A kind of conscious attention to the to the manipulation of the instrument and the and the mechanical process of actually making the music then it will suck it will yeah. suck it will either suck musically or it will suck um uh as a as it will be a joyless experience for you and so it will contribute to an overall um uh, uh a glut of of other joyless experiences and then you're the way that the, the character of music making for you and then for your audience will will diminish and so for me changing the the, the yoga beforehand is a it's, it's like this grand um leveler it it no matter where you are 
um, in your day, you can be having a crazy fucking day, and you're on tour. Every sort of thing happens. I'm in, yeah. I'm in another plane or two planes every day. Not eating the healthiest foods. Yeah. You're, yeah. And and so that that 35, 45 minutes of yoga before the set takes all that and equalizes it and puts it. It just it. It, it, although it maybe doesn't get you all right to zero, sure. it gets you close enough to it so that when you hit the stage, you're, you're, everything is in the right You've spot. You've got what you need yeah. to Blood to is do moving. Yeah. The, yeah. And, and, then, and then even just uh, more specifically on just a, um, the body as mechanics, uh, one of the most important things I learned from a dude named Mark Kirschenmann, brilliant trumpet player, um, I think he's a he's, um, professor over at University of Michigan now, um, is that if you want your fingers to move fast and to be agile um, and to be exacting, you stretch your legs. Yeah. Um, all of that tension starts in the low back and your ass. And um, and so you stretch your legs out, you stretch your hamstrings out, you stretch your ass out, you stretch your low back out. All of that stuff will release tension that comes down through your neck, into your through your shoulders and into your hands. Um and uh and then your hands will be limber the other and so i mean so that's one thing keeping hands uh fast and then and keeping them a lot of what i do is is all um the the main people always focus on the circular breathing which mm-hmm. is nothing um mm-hmm. it's what it's it's the fact that you're doing a bunch of thing like it's the fact that you're you're mouth has to stay clenched mm-hmm. in a way for 15 you know potentially minutes um and doesn't get that even that little break of just opening up for a breath every once in a while which is actually hugely um um uh important you know for um for not getting for not stressing those muscles out and getting too tired and then the hands the repetitive motion of some of that stuff especially with with regard to the pinkies on, yeah, a, on yeah. a big horn like the bass yeah, yeah. Um, just like slamming that thing over and over again where it's just it's just bang 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 doing some sort of intricate pattern for 15 minutes is um, kind of insane and so it's just it's just a recipe for tendonitis. So the way to to, to surpass that and to make sure that I don't that, that I avoid tendonitis is, is through like a lot of different strengthening things, um, uh, stretching, um, uh, practicing uh, contrast baths. We're soaking uh, hands and arms in hot and cold water back and forth. Yeah. Uh-huh. You do um, that before the gig, or you just kind of do that? No, in your no, no, life? no. I do that in life. Yeah, um, that's just healing. That's just makes yeah. things. Um, yeah, just uh, that's just make sure that you're that you're not really getting residual, um, like any that, any like that kind of like toxic lactic acid and whatever that that's building up in joints and building up right. in tendons and in muscles in your forearms. I get massaged um, regularly and and with a focus on my forearms, which are con- like terribly ropey and yeah. um, really really tight. So people have to kind of specifically spend. 20 minutes just on that part of me to 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 ease out and get some blood flowing into those things because um because of the the kind of repetitive motion yeah yeah makes um I don't know. I, I I throw a lot of terminology. I I say things like calcification. I'm sure that that's not what's happening, but um, it's a hardening um, um, mm-hmm. and a stiffening of of those um, those tendons and muscles in the forearms. So um, there's a there's like a whole host of um, practices and techniques that I use that I didn't do before when I was young and having fun. Um, but, uh, but that now are largely the reason for me being able to get into different music. Well, you know, you know what's important spaces. for your life, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is that musical trajectory, that yeah. musical pursuit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm glad you're doing it. Me too. 
Man, I'm glad you came over too. This is <laughs> great, man. It's my pleasure. It's thank, good to talk to you. Thank Colin. All right, that was Colin Stetson. I hope that you guys enjoyed that. Uh, I certainly did. He's a great guy. He's a great guy to talk to. Great guy to listen to. And uh, I, I hope to see more of him. If you want to find out more about Colin, go to colinstetson.com. And uh, that's it. I'll say it again. Let's help out the stone. Let's get this thing going. Go to the 5049 website. Link directly to the uh, pledge drive and, and whatever you can do to help. And that's it. Um, we'll be back next week. Next week's another good one. Until then, hope you guys are all doing well. Talk to you soon. Bye.